Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 352. I praise the Lord that I'm not in construction. My name is Caleb Hegg. I praise God Uh that I am in construction, aiming to be the wise builder that Yeshua talks Uh about, those who hear his word and build on it, build on the rock. (laughs) Shameless plug on the fly. Okay, I just saw a headline, dude. Okay, what is it? Uh, Department of Justice seizes tablet of stolen Epic of Gilgamesh from Hobby Lobby. Ooh. Yikes. We've talked about that on this show before. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, they bought it. Uh, apparently, they bought a five by six inch Gilgamesh dream tablet for $1.6 million from an art dealer who provided a letter of provenance claiming the piece had originally been found in a box of ancient bronze fragments, da, 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 da. But the prosecutors say it was false. It was a fake document and that this 3,500-year-old Akkadian tablet was looted from Iraq after 1991. And so it it violated U.S. law, this purchase. Just remember... It's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> so Yikes, this is an man. example. Remember, we had this with uh, uh, fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and things right, like right, that, right, things right. that were stolen. Yeah. And so you have, again, you have, you know, it, I like that proverb. It says, Lord, give me give me enough money so I can pay my bills, you know, but don't, don't, uh, don't let me have not enough to where I'm, you know, or don't let make me so much that I forget you. I'm totally butchering it. It's in the Proverbs. But the Chapter idea is, verse, sir. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Someone will find it for us. But the idea is there's tremendous responsibility. I I, I believe that their core intention is is one of look, we want it, we have all this money. We're evangelical Christians, and there's what, they're trying to do. Be, they're trying to do things to to further the body. I get it. Museum of the Bible. Yeah, right. we want to do, and which is funny, called Mob Mob. Right? Museum. I think it's called the Museum of the Bible. M O T B. But in so doing, people are scamming them right. because they they don't have discernment. And what they've had to do is develop technology. Now they've really because with the the forgeries and fakes, they've had the money to invest in technology and new methods to discern this thing. So everybody has benefited, even non-believers in, in the Bible industry, you know, of like SBL and this, professors of Bible, they all benefit from this investment that the Green family is making. Yeah. But at the, but sadly, the Greens get a licking. I mean, the yeah. liberals love to, say, love to say, look at these silly Christians. They Hobby Lobby's at it again. Don't go to the Museum of the Bible if you want you know, because they're going to just push an evangelical worldview on you. I see this stuff coming from the academic elites that, but uh, it's it's just interesting how stuff like this brings all this out anyway. So uh, we got a YouTube comment this week. And by the way, I'm, I've decided I got to stop reading the YouTube comments for a little while. People are, (laughs) people are just really, really getting under my skin and it's not good for my health. I don't think anyway, um, people being, I I just haven't looked. So I don't Sean know. in the chat room says Proverbs thirty verse seven through nine. Anyway, um, thank you, Sean. The um, I, we got a comment from somebody this week, and they were like, it, it was on a video that it was on a video from like I don't know two two or three years ago, right? And it was during uh, St. Patrick's Day. And you were like, we were hypothesizing like, wait, now what exactly is the legend of of St. Patrick, right? And so I jump, I'm like, well, hang on just a second. I jump on the uh, good old Google, right? I said, Rabbi Google will know, right? So I jump on Google and sure enough, I look up some article on, on St. Patrick and, and we discuss this person's like, all right, Caleb, always criticizing people for using the internet in their study. And then what do you do? You go to quote Rabbi Google. It's like, okay. It was a joke. <laughs> Well, not only that, but I'm not saying that people should never use Google. If you're talking about legends or you want to look up dates or you want, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. Who was that you the would, 30th president or stuff like that? 
Yeah, exactly. It's not like a person should never use Google. It's if you're going to write a paper on or if you're going to talk about research that you're doing on on a biblical topic, you'd got to use some books. You can't use Google. That's the point. So I think that there has been a little bit of a misunderstanding in terms of from some people, not from all people, from um, from some people who think that uh, we're against people opening their computer and using it for research. That's not the, that's not what we're saying with that. Once again, I think this goes back to the discernment. Anyway, okay, hey, how's it going, everybody? Looks like we got a good showing in the uh, chat room. Hi, chat room. Nice to see you. Thank you, Sean. He says it's verse 9, so 30 verse 9. Um, Proverbs 30 verse 9 was the reference that Rob was making. Thank you for that. Okay, let's, uh, should we jump into this? Or do we have more to, oh, I should probably explain my my construction reference. Uh, I'm building an office at my house. At least I, I'm going oh, to. Oh, now I get it. Okay, thank you. I was wondering And what so the preempt, to preempt the, the build that I'm doing, and somebody asked me, my wife asked me too, she was like, so do you have like blueprints for this? And I was like, it's all up here. Got it all up here. So I don't have blueprints for it. But somebody, like I, I bought a, a kit to build a smaller shed to put all of this stuff that was in the garage that we tore down. Okay. This kit, it looked like they sent me wood from the Lowe's reject pile. It was so bad. There was bows in some of the, there was literally bows in some of the wood in some of the two by fours that were like an inch off. I'm not joking. It was bad. Anyway, so I built this thing and I've just been praising the Lord that other people do construction instead of me because I could not do this for a living. I'm, I'm not only am I bad at it, I just don't like it. I'm sure you're gonna, everybody's gonna hear more about this throughout the next month and a half as I build my office. Okay, let's jump into things that are actually important. Let's do it. Um, Paul, our, oh, I forgot to grab this. Should we do this next week or should I run out into my, run out and grab the uh, article? Grab the article, man. Should I? Okay, well, yeah. then you're going to... I'll read the... What's the passage again? And I'll read that and talk, okay. we'll talk about that. It is Revelation... Uh, no, 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 no. No, sorry, the proverb. Oh, proverb uh, 30. Proverbs 30, verse 9. Go. Okay, so Caleb... Okay. Thank you, Sean, by the way, uh, whoever you are. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, yeah, so Proverbs... This is the... What am I reading from? NASB, Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. That's awesome. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Yeah, this is the one. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is Adonai? Or that I will not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. That is an awesome passage there. That's the one I had in mind, um, thinking about the Hobby Lobby situation, because they have um, obviously riches. I mean, they're billionaires, and they got it legitimately. I, uh, I think they had a, a good business. I've, you know, we've purchased stuff from Hobby Lobby before. Hobby Lobby! They, they my, built my it up. My kids say that. My kids say it like that, too. So, and, and it's a, uh, you know, they employ people, they, they're convicted about a Shabbat, but their theology is such that it is what they think of as Sunday. So they have a conviction about the law of God and letting employees rest, which I believe is good in principle. Of course, we would differ with them on that. It's, you know, Sunday's not the Shabbat, but aside from that, I think they represent, uh, you know, an event, uh, American evangelical success story that is trying to be good stewards of of their blessings, of their riches, and I and I I think that's I think that should be granted to them, and I think that is demonstrated even by unbelievers who see when they've been called out for look, you're you've got a, these are forgeries or look this was stolen material. They've gone above board, in my view, to make it right to pay any kind of penalty fines they they have been above board and um exemplary as u.s citizens you know uh, that bear the name christian I, that's my opinion okay let's okay. move 
Uh, so before, before, of, be, before we before we jump in two five three four six five thirty two zero five it's two five three four six five thirty two zero five Messiah Man yeah I actually don't have it queued up so we're gonna have to wait on that one and seahagatorresource dot com and seahagatorresource dot com okay with all of that said let's go to Paul Paul is in the chat room right now thank you for this comment Paul Paul says hi Caleb I'm reading through Revelation. Whew. Heavy book. And in chapter 3, verse 5, Yeshua says to the church of Sardis, the one who overcomes will be clothed the same way in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. As a proponent of the doctrines of grace, how do we explain I will not erase his name from the book of life to those who would argue against this doctrine as it seems to elude that you can lose your salvation? As a follow-up question, well, let's first... Let's let's hold off on that, uh, on the follow-up question. Okay, so first of all, this is a great question. Um, the first thing I want to say is that this is a promise. It's it, it's a positive. It's not a negative. So I think that we need to uh, resist the urge to make it a negative. In other words, what I mean by that is, I will not erase your name out of the book of life. Which means that, and what people want to make this into is a negative, meaning that if somebody doesn't maintain until the end, he will erase their name out of the book of life. And the reason like, he, I, like, like Yeshua is holding this over you. Right, exactly. He doesn't say that. He's like, gonna, he's got, like he's got the eraser right there and yeah, he's watching you. There's no mention of an eraser or anything like that. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, the reason I think that is because this is actually, a, this is a cultural reference that people within the culture would have known. And so there's a meaning to this. Now, for this, we're going to go to the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Um, and this is a, a full set published by Zondervan. Really good. There's a lot of really good stuff in here. Okay, this is on Revelation 3.5.2 at the bottom of page 449. Furthermore, the pure relationship to Christ, if Christ is pre, preeminently guaranteed. I will never erase his name from the book of life. In ancient cities, the name of citizens were recorded in a register till their death. Then their names were erased and marked out of the book of the living. This same idea appears in the Old Testament, Exodus 32, 32 through 33. So I think that that actually um, is going to be a response to Paul's follow-up question on that. So yes, there is a parallel here. From the idea of, and other passages as well, from the idea of being recorded in God's book of the living or the righteous comes the sense of belonging to God's eternal kingdom or possessing eternal life. And there are many references given. For Christ to say that he will never blot out or erase the overcomer's name from the book of life is the strongest affirmation that death can never separate us from Christ and his life. A person enrolled in the book of life by faith remains in it by faithfulness and can be erased only by disloyalty. There is some evidence that a person's name could be removed from the city register before death if you were uh, convicted of a crime. In the first century, Christians who were loyal to Christ were under constant threat of being branded political and social rebels and then stripped of their citizenship. But, Christ's offer, but Christ offers them an eternal safe citizenship in his everlasting kingdom if they only remain loyal to him. I see this as a, I see this as a promise that you're in. It's not like, you're, like those who are true covenant members will endure to the end, and those who endure to the end are in the book of life. In other words, it's another declaration of uh, it's another declaration that uh, you are a citizen, and Paul talks about this all the time in Colossians. I'm I just got done with Colossians, so he he talks about this idea of inclusion. Colossians and Philemon. He continually continually goes into the idea that the Gentiles are in. They are. Uh, he uses it in Galatians, heirs according to promise. Right? They are part of the family. And so in this, in the Revelation 3-5 passage, the way I see it, it's not a threat that I'm going to take you out of the book of life if you don't do what I say. What it is is a reaffirmation that you are in. You're one of the citizens. You're in my book, which means you can't be taken out. Death doesn't separate you. That's how I see this passage. Rob? 
Yeah, a parallel that I like is from Luke 10, maybe people are already thinking of it, is where Yeshua appoints the 70, sends them out, and they have, you know, they're rejoicing because they have power, right? He's given them authority over the demons. Even. Right. And Yeshua says, in, in this is Luke 10, um, 19, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents, scorpions, over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So the, the point is that you are, that he's telling them that you are recorded in heaven, you know? Right, um, already. Yeah. Now, someone could say, well, was Judas one of these? And was Judas then later erased? No, because we know that Judas would have already been an exception because Yeshua says, you know, one of you is a devil. You know, I, I chose, I didn't I choose you 12 and one of you is a devil. And the son of perdition would do what he was going to do as it was written uh, that he would do it. So um, just because Judas was one of the disciples, he's not a proof case that someone could lose your salvation. It's not like Judas was saved and then lost it. I think we also need to remember that, the, that you know, I and I know that there is uh, people who have pushed against this. I, I know that pe- there are people who hold to the doctrines of grace who pu- push against this. First of all, we need to remember that the Bible speaks to us uh, from our perspective, which is that we are, uh, that, that we live in time and we do have choice. Now that's different than free will, but we do have choice. If we were all if we were all just robots, then we would never sin. If we just did what God wanted us to do, we then we would never sin, right? right. So the point is is that we do have will. I don't believe we have free will, but we have will. And so the Bible exhorts us to do the right thing, to endure to the end, to, you know, the idea of being chosen or God knowing, God being omniscient and being um, you know, all knowing in these things that that doesn't uh, we don't see it from that perspective. And so the fact of the matter is, is that we are exhorted to endure to the end, to uh, live righteously, to uh, live unto God. Right. And that's because we have will and we will fall and we will uh, we will fall short. Right. The Bible tells us this. Uh, but the point is, is that we need to continually look to Christ and continually uh, push to try to win the race. And from our pers- from our perspective, the last thing I'll say, from our perspective, a person, if we see people in the congregation, I've, I mean, this is I've seen this before, men and women who are in the congregation of the of of believers, right, and then they end up leaving, and you think, wow, this person has great faith, so on and so forth. And then what happens? They deny Christ. And so from our perspective, people can, you know, in within time, we see people as in and then out. I don't think that's how God sees it. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I was just reflecting on one other aspect of this Luke passage that I just right before that. He says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And we know that Yeshua says he came in Hebrews, isn't it? He came to destroy the works of the devil. But we know that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We know that Yeshua going to the cross was not plan B. Right. You know, some people frame it like God's original plan was for to create Eden. And his plan was that Adam and Eve would just live in Eden and people would just, and there would be, you know, and then, well, he, but then the flood, he had to bring the flood and then he, then God's plan was, okay, I'll make it with Abraham and his offspring. Israel was the plan, but then Israel failed. And then it's like, well, God's like, I guess I got to come and do this myself. Right. In other words, there's a way of reading the Bible that people have that put the cross as like God's final idea right you know his last ditch effort yep but as we know as we we, we've been we've talked about all these verses that anchor the new covenant outside of time like before the foundation of the world and if that is the case and yeshua coming and dying on the cross is uh pertains to victory over satan 
and uh, the you know the demons and things like that, then that it was not in some you know what are the you know aliens coming down or some you know non-humans mating with humans in Genesis six and you know it's before that right the the origin of sin is and the fall come are are implied from before the creation of of the world it had to have been because yeshua didn't come and die for no purpose so anyway i that i know that's not what we're talking about today but because that luke 10 passage uh 10:18 mentions yeshua talking saying that you know seeing this victory of of the church of of his people over you know the sons of we are the children of god right those who are uh in messiah are the children of god and we we have authority in this world and and in his name and uh that's not a it's not a plan b or plan c from god so Brandon in the chat room says, ever looking at Dr. Light, uh, Light and Flowers teaching against Calvinism. And Andre Philippe, who's a teacher at Torah Resource Institute, says, Dr. Flowers does not exegete Romans 9 from beginning to end without leaving the text. And, Brand, and Brandon responds, yes, he does. <laughs> uh, uh, he says, Brandon goes on, he says, I, I've seen uh, his videos where he goes against that false claim. And then Sean rightly says, I have never seen somebody actually debunk the doctrines of grace. Right. And well, here, here's the thing. wait, wait hang, on, hang on, hang on. Oh. And Andre responds, Paul was not a Gnostic. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That is, that's right. Um, uh, what do these words mean is what Andre says. So, uh, by the way, let's plug Andre. Yeah. The uh, idea is, Oh yeah, go ahead. Plug. Andre's let's plug. Class. Let's plug Andre's uh, 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 course that's coming up. He has a summer course coming up on uh, ethnicity and the Bible, uh, which it's a four-week course. It's only forty dollars. I would highly recommend everybody sign up for it. It starts on August tenth, so it's coming up quick here. And uh, basically, he's going to take four weeks to look at what the Bible says about ethnicity, how the Bible talks about ethnicity. He's going to look at Abraham and the inclusion into the covenants. He's going to look at Israel. He's going to then in his final week, he will look at critical race theory, uh, just a general overview of critical race theory and how that fits into what uh, has been studied in the previous three weeks leading up to that point. I, I, I think that this is a hot button uh, topic right now. Uh, not only in churches, but just in in the believing communities in general, and uh, so I would I would highly recommend that uh, people go to torresource dot com. You can sign up for that that class now. It's on the homepage, and uh, join Andre in his look uh, at ethnicity and the Bible. Okay, go for it. I was just going to uh, add to that awesome citation of Exodus. The end of Exodus is at chapter thirty four. Uh, that Andre uh, posted mm-hmm. um, that that in Exodus we learn what God's name is right it, at the beginning of Exodus we see he says share yeah I will be what I will be or I am that I am but it's I, I will be who I will be and the idea is Moses is going to discover God's character that he is that he determines that he is sovereign and no one can can uh, you know, disturb his plan, right? And and at the end of Exodus, we see even on the other side of the golden calf, some something as horrendous as that, Israel going into idolatry, God's sovereign choice, he still reserves for himself this sovereignty, of, uh, this sovereign choice. And without it, we'd be, we, we would be dust. I mean, you touched on this last, uh, last week, Caleb, Without God's grace, without God's grace and mercy, we'd we'd all be destroyed. Right. We don't. We, there, no, none of us earns righteousness. Right. What this is, uh, except Yeshua demonstrated grace and truth. It says in John one, uh, and of course Yeshua never sinned. He never transgressed the will of the Father. 
and therefore he's the heir of uh, demonstrated heir before all creation of for all time uh, of the truth of of God and um, and he it's in him that we have our identity apart from him back to your quote from that that study Bible or what was it the exegetical commentary that it, that's our life. Yeshua is our life. Our attachment to the to the resurrected Messiah is more solid than anything in this world. And that's where, as a believers, that long to to see Him, right? Long to be with Him, uh, even though we are with Him in the Spirit, of course. Um, there's nothing on earth that's going to satisfy that. And so for someone who says, oh, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus, you know, for a while. And then, you know, I I just found better love somewhere else. You know, I don't, I, I, is that kind of what they say? I mean, the idea is, well, then you never actually. That's not what Flowers says. So in, in uh, Flowers, yeah, holds to a one saved, always saved. And Brandon in the chat room uh, speaks, he, he references oh, okay. that. But. Uh, one thing that Brandon says here, I, I got to push against this just quickly and then we'll move to a, a, another topic. But Brandon says, especially the traditionalist view of Romans 9, Calvinism equals Augustinianism equals Gnosticism slash Stoicism, in my opinion. This, uh, I think that there is a, a historical uh, missing a lot of links here. And the reason why is because Gnosticism doesn't come around until the second to third century CE. It probably, it probably flowers out of and branches out of uh, Jewish uh, mysticism and Jewish magic. Uh, the Gnostic, the Gnosticism as a, a system of theology doesn't come around until later. The fact of the matter is, is that God preaches uh, uh, the doctrines of grace to Abraham. He says the covenant will be held through. Please give the covenant to my son. And he said yeah. to Ishmael, and he says, "No, the covenant will be held through Isaac, who had not even been conceived. He hadn't even been born, yet. and his seed after him, which means we guarantee Isaac also is going to have children." Right. And so, so the the fact of the matter is, is that uh, you have we're talking about you know two thousand years before Gnosticism is created. You can't say that that Calvinism equals Augustinian, and not only that, but Calvin Calvinism, quote unquote, doesn't come around until like the the what is called Calvinism isn't labeled that until the 1600s. So it would actually have to be something like biblical truth, Augustinianism, because Augustine comes in the second, second, third century. Augustinianism. Fourth century. I I think he's probably taken that Augustine before he was a Christian was a Manichaean or whatever, you know, that he, he might be working backwards, but no matter what it, it, it doesn't seem to work. Okay. Um, let's move on. Well, and it's too, it's, it's a, way oversimplification to just say this equals this equals this. Yeah, actually, so um, uh, did, I, did I say second or third century? I apologize. I Augustinianism. Know. Anyway, um, yeah, Augustine was in the fourth, what, third to fourth century. He writes in the third, doesn't he write at the end of the third century? He writes at the end of the fourth, fourth century, I think. Fourth the into 300s. the 300s. Yeah. Th- he, uh, he and, he and uh, Jerome. Yeah, yes. Okay. Live, kind of in the same time, but yep. they're in different places. I'm I'm getting my history mixed up. Okay. I think that should we move to Augustine the Hippo. He was like a really big guy, the hippo. Yeah, he was huge. Oh, it's of hippo. Uh I think that we should move to our main discussion now. And then we can come back. Actually there were some good comments. Uh actually the same Brandon that's in the chat room right now sent us a comment, uh left a uh, left a comment. We'll try to get to that um in uh later in this show. We'll see if we get to it. If we don't, then we'll touch on it next week. Okay. Stephen, our good friend who had written in about um, oral Torah, now writes in asking multiple questions about the Torah. Let's see what he says. He says, so good to see you on YouTube again. We took a break for those who don't know. I just watched episode 351 twice. 
Thanks for answering my questions. There are so many gaps in my knowledge of the history of how we receive the scriptures, so if I may. Number one, was God's Torah written down on scrolls during the tabernacle period? I think that this is a decent question. Uh, whether or not it was written down on scrolls or not, that is hard. I don't think we'll ever be able to know that. Um, Suzer and Vassal treaties. So, um, it's very possible that that uh, that um, Moses was actually writing down the Torah on some kind of parchment or something like that. They also used stones to write down things like the Suzer and Vassal treaties. When we think of the uh, ten, the ten words, the ten commandments, what we think of is this picture of you know Moses with these two huge tablets, like in the you know. Like in in the olden uh, movies, you know, he's got these two huge tablets that he comes down and then he breaks them over his head and he's like this bodybuilder because he can lift these stones. And the truth is, is that um, we have there is actually evidence that these stones were probably a real small and it wasn't like five were written on one side and five were written on the other. Uh, they were probably duplicate copies. And the reason why is because the uh, suzerain would keep one and then there was one for everyone to see. Or the vassal would keep one. I'm sorry, the vassal would keep one or the vassal and the suzerain would both keep one. Anyway, the point is that there was two. It was it was duplicate copies. And so we see this actually uh one was put into the Ark of the Covenant, right? Hence Ark of the Covenant. Um and then the other one um, we're not sure, but they had a scroll in the temple that people could go and check. It was the litmus test, right? And this was later on, obviously. So what was what was Moses writing on? We don't know. Um, it seems as though he's obviously writing things down. So uh, it you know, and God writes the ten words down. So certainly they had written copies or written ledgers of what is being said. Rob, on this specific yeah, we, question, yeah, we don't know. I don't know. I always envisioned the the ta both tablets being in the ark. Um, but in any event, the uh, we we are trained to think of five on one, five on the other, right? But the Bible, with that I agree. I, I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible that says five on one, five on another. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the, you know the five books of Moses, um, I would assume. I mean, I'm just left to assume that they were written on parchment, on leather. I mean, that was. Uh, um, you know, a, a technology, you know, not a lot of people, you know, all archeologically, we don't have any uh, texts that are that old, you know, all the oldest fragments from ancient Israel are, you know, ostraca, you know, pot pottery shards and ink on stone. We have ink on stone or pottery, or we do have the little silver, amulet you know that has uh, part of the priestly blessing on it um but we don't have uh so there you have metal people you know scratching out on metal but the scriptures don't tell us you know that it that it was on uh leather specifically i'm sure it wasn't on um like it wasn't baked clay you know like in mesopotamia it wasn't like that and I'm sure it wasn't papyrus like it was in Egypt, because even though they would have been exposed to papyrus writing technology in Egypt, we have very, very old papyrus uh, from ancient Egypt. Um, uh, it uh, it needs to be carefully preserved, you know. So anyway, leather scrolls to me makes the most sense, but again, I, that's just that's just a guess. Um, this, uh, by the way, this is uh, this conversation is probably going to uh, go into next week, and the reason why is because we need to also talk about the trans after we look at Stephen's uh, questions about the trans like how they transmitted. We also need to talk about the idea of the the uh, writing and of the authoring of the books, and then the acceptance of the canon of the Tanakh, which I think is an important thing to look at. Okay. Uh, question two, were the Torah scrolls studied and slash preached in any way during the first temple period? 
This is an interesting question because once again, we just don't know. And I, I think we'll have to skip this one. But ultimately, we know that the that that Israel was following after the Baals, and at some point they they're not reading anything. How do we know that? Because they find the scrolls and then all of a sudden Hilkiah is like, oh my word, we should be celebrating Passover. Look at what it says right here. So uh, like obviously Israel was not keeping up their end of the bargain, right? Right. Here's an interesting thing too, archaeologically. I don't know if anybody's been watching, you know, archaeology from Israel, but they found, I think they found pig carcass in like the city of David or somewhere in Jerusalem that dates to you know, ancient Israel time, and they think that it was probably eaten, as well as like catfish and shark, like uh, like what we would call basically evidence, but through bones of unclean animals that were probably they're thought to have been consumed. So um, it's it's not surprising, you know, because the Bible does not paint a picture of ancient Israel as this. Torah observant people, not not at all. And the prophets are always the prophets had full time jobs, preaching repentance to wayward Israel. You know that's the that's the norm. The norm, as sad as it is, was that the the prophets were persecuted. The prophets were not listened to, and um, I'm getting some weird muffling on your end and I don't know what that is. No, anyway. it sounds like somebody's putting a a pillow over your mic. Anyway, we'll try to figure that out. Okay. Um question 3. Uh when the first temple was destroyed, were all of God's written Torahs destroyed with them? I'd have to say no. Yeah, I'd have to say no. These are a lot of hypotheticals. But ultimately, we know that the transmission of God's word continued on through until the Masoretic text. They standardized the text, right? So the Masoretes write anywhere in between 500 and 1,000. There is evidence that there was different schools, quote-unquote schools of scribes. The Masoretes had different schools. And that uh, around the 10 hundreds, they decided to standardize the text. Now, this was probably a push from one specific school that wanted their text to be standardized, um, they, they wanted people to accept their text, but neither here nor there. Um, the idea uh, is that uh, they basically took all the scrolls, they did something that didn't match up to these specific scrolls. Um, we need to remember, now a lot of people are against the Masoretic text, and I'm not sure why that is. We need to remember that there's a lot of different texts that we have of the Tanakh. So there's the Septuagint, there is the um, there's the Targums, there's the Syriac Peshitta. There's I mean we have all these different texts, and so we can look at all these and and try to get back to what we believe is the original. The reason that the Masoretic text is is taken as the standard is because the Masoretes were extremely particular about how they copied their texts. So for instance, they counted every single word and they counted every single letter. In every scroll that was made, they knew what the middle letter of the of the uh, of the Torah was. They knew what the middle uh, word of the Torah was, and they this is how they uh, this is how they uh, essentially tried to uh, keep things right. Um, and so they would count every every time they would count. And then this meticulous uh, uh, attention to detail is because they know that there are competing versions out there. I mean, and that's, so again, we've talked about this before, but, you know, in the first century, it's not like there was just monolithic Judaism, right? And everybody, it's, it's not like Catholicism, you know, it's not like Catholicism for Jews, you know, where you've got a head guy and everybody follows suit and there's a chain of command and, no, what you have is competing stories. And in those stories, competing stories, what it means to be Israel. What, what's the fate of a Gentile? What's the, who, what is the Messiah? Who, what, what do we expect about the Messiah? How do you keep the Sabbath? Um, uh, do we, do we, what's our relationship with internationally? Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
do uh, if the if the priesthood if the high priesthood is corrupt does that invalidate the whole temple that there there's can't we go on and on and on about issues you know i mean the samaritans versus the judeans for example is a good example you know these are all examples of disunity it wasn't a unified people so when yeshua comes and trains and raises up and trains men and teaches them and then equips them to to take his message he's saying here's the pure signal here's the pure signal and um so when we today as readers we look back and we have different like caleb was just mentioned we have different greek manuscripts hebrew aramaic latin right and what do we do how do we know what is what is the true bible well we don't have access to the original manuscripts of the bible we don't right um so- and so we don't have access so when we ask speculative questions like well did moses write on a scroll the idea is is there somewhere in the world like indiana jones you know that we can go find the scrolls that moses wrote and then and then just make sure all our Bibles come from those scrolls. You know, that would be, that's a like a, a, a good idea, right? I mean, wouldn't we want to? If we knew, Caleb, you mentioned this earlier about the idea of in the temple, we know that they had master copies that people could come and correct uh, Torah scrolls by. I mean, that would be great. But part of the problem of fallen humanity is as sin in the world is this division and groups being against other groups and uh the difficulty of scribes scribes are not angels right they're 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 men and jeremiah even mentioned something about the lying pen of the scribes that that uh the prophets weren't scribes some of the prophets have like you know baruch was a scribe of jeremiah so jeremiah would prophesy and and uh, Baruch would write it down. And then later we know Daniel read, studied scrolls from Jeremiah. Um, so what, what, the Bible does not satisfy, I, this is kind of a common phrase these days for me, but sometimes we have curiosity about things and the Bible is silent. And where that is, we need to be okay with that. Be okay and recognize that our curiosity Feeding our curiosity is not God's goal for us. Because we'll have a never-ending appetite of curiosity. Right? And it reminds me of James. James says, you know, you ask, but you do not receive. Why? Because you're just going to spend it on your lusts. Right? And God shapes his people to have godly character, to walk in holiness. And that means we recognize what's outside our lane, what's, what's for God to understand. This is why this whole supernatural view of the world that Heiser is pushing, the unseen realm, it's off limits, man. There's, it's, it's, it, I just would not recommend that to anybody. I would say stay away from that. Okay, let's keep going. Um, there. <laughs> thanks for letting, thanks for letting me <laughs> go on there. Go ahead. Not a problem. Uh, so. The next question is going to be a little bit off topic, but in the same vein. And and I think it's an important question because it won't really speak to the transmission of the scriptures, but I think that it will talk a little bit about um, the preservation, maybe, okay, or maybe the history of Israel and worship. Uh, He asks, was it during these destruction periods that God's people created the synagogue? So there's no real uh, solid, once again, you're asking questions that have no real solid answer. Uh, It is hypothesized by scholars that the synagogue was created uh, in the second temple period for people outside of Judea and that these synagogues were basically um, for people who were too far away from the temple. We need to remember that the temple was was the place of worship for Israel. It was the place to go. And remember that there was a scroll in the temple where people could go and check to make sure that either their scrolls or, you know, their understanding of the text was correct. It was the 
it was the ruler, as it were, uh, for other Torah scrolls. And so we see synagogues in Israel. Those are later. But as you get farther and farther away from the temple, you see more and more synagogues out in the diaspora. And the reason why is because people wanted to, it's believed. We don't want to make uh, categorical statements here because there is no categorical answer. Um, but it is believed by scholars that uh, that people wanted to worship God and wanted to be able to do that without having to travel, you know, what, 100 miles or whatever to go to the temple. And so you had uh, people who would get together. They would worship God. They would read the, the Torah. They would listen to people expound on the Torah. And uh, they would most likely, we believe they would probably sing hymns or sing some of the Psalms. Um, and that's really all we know. There's some evidence that there were, um, that, that later on in time, people included mikvahs into, ritual baths into their worship. Um, but even that is, is debated on, on how often that happened um, until the destruction of the temple. Thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, these are really good questions, and they all lead a person to, you have to say, okay, what are the primary sources that I would, that would help give me information about this? So you'd look at archaeology and you'd say, okay, you know, what are the oldest buildings that scholars actually say, yeah, this was probably a synagogue and here's why. Um, learning languages of the Bible, you know, that's another aspect to being able to interact with and think about the problem or the question that you have and have that, have your thoughts informed by primary sources. And um, we just, there's just information we just don't have. And so we have to then be really careful, right? Really careful on, you know, what we can say we know and what is speculation. And when we start pushing back further and further into history, it, it um, we just don't have answers for a lot of these good questions. So um, the next question, number six, is that when God's people started substituting written or oral traditions for the actual law of God? I think that this came about the idea of man-made traditions comes about from various quote-unquote sects of Judaism's. In other words, you do it like us. We do it different than them, therefore we're right. You know, I think that you should wash your hands. I think you should wash your hands too. Okay, but you can only wash your hands with this kind of a pitcher. Oh, well, I see you can only wash your hands. And, and what blessing do you say yeah, exactly. while you're doing it? And this, ultimately, this comes down to the idea, I think this is a crossing over of the idea of synagogue rule with family rule. And I think that you get into problems every time. You know, we have people I, throughout my life. I've been in part of uh, different congregations, and I've uh, there. There's always the same thing that people, especially when people are coming to an understanding that they should be keeping Torah. People will come in and they'll say, "Give me the list." Not in so many words, you know, more words than that, but in a roundabout way, they say, "Give me the list." What's the list? Just tell me what I can do and tell me what I can't do. And that's honestly not the way that the Torah is written. Um, it, the, the Torah is not written in, as a list of this. these are the do's, these are the don'ts. That's just not the way it's written. And as soon as, and what happens is you have, you have congregations, you have uh, sects of Judaism that just say, you know what, you want a list? Boom, here's the list. You know, the Shulchan Aruch in Judaism is the list. You want to know how to live? This is how you do it. Now, the problem is, is that it's nonsense. It's total and complete nonsense. And this is what happens when you have people that are trying to make law, laws of God for God. God's the only one who can make laws for God. And so uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we live according to the way that the scriptures, we believe the scriptures are telling us to live. We do that in a community setting. We also do that in a family setting and in a personal personal setting. And that's actually one of the things uh, that I've found to... Uh, Colossians 3 to really be interesting, he gives a personal code, a community code, and a family code. And he does it in that order. And I, I, I just think that that's super interesting that uh, <clears throat> we see this structure within the scriptures itself. 
Anything else on that? The problem with tradition, one other aspect is just the sinful heart. Um, you know, re, if you read Isaiah 1, they're doing, we're keeping the feasts, you know, they're keeping the Sabbath, they're offering burnt offerings, you know, at the temple that Solomon himself had built and the glory of the Lord himself had filled so that the Levites couldn't even enter, right? But yet over the centuries, what had happened? These people draw near with near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. And that's the scripture that Yeshua cites, you know, in his confrontation concerning the hand washing, you know, in Matthew 15, Mark 7. So Yeshua it's, is applying what Isaiah said. So the problem of, of building up traditions for uh, affirming who is righteous, who belongs, who doesn't, who is it, what, you know, how to be in the in group, though that's a problem of the human heart. And, um, you know, if somebody said, oh, I just want to be acceptable, I just want to be acceptable, those people represent God, and I want them to like me, so I'm going to do whatever they tell me so I can be, avoid them being canceled by them, right? I, I don't want to be canceled by the Pharisees. I don't want to be canceled by the Essenes. And that's, that's kind of, I mean, in our day and age, if you were part of the Yahad out at Qumran and you violated one of their community rules, you'd be, it's like being canceled, right? There's great shame. And so it's, it's all fed around the fallen human heart that is motivated by honor and shame in society. Um, whereas Yeshua's like, don't, you know, don't be like the hypocrites, but rather go in, close your door and pray to your father in heaven. He already knows what you need before you ask. There's nothing you can hide from him. We get and we got to be confronted with our sin problem. This gets back to our tea of tulip, our total depravity. If you don't, you know, there's, is sin a major problem or is sin just a minor problem? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can understand I'm a sinner, but I'm really a smart guy and I can study and I can make the right choice. You know, just give me enough information. I'll make the right choice. Um, so I, we, we've got to talk about what's going on in the chat room right now. Gregory okay. or, uh, Gregory and Brandon have been going back and forth. Uh, Brandon seems to uh, think that he has correctly understood the doctrines of grace, which from his comments... And I could be wrong, but from his comments, it seems that he has grossly misunderstood the doctrines of grace. Um, and so he says uh, that they, they being sinners, but they only sin because they could do nothing other than what God determined. Gregory responds that no, God does not determine. It's impossible for God to uh, determine sin for someone. In other words, God doesn't make people sin. And that is correct. So right. This conversation is going on, but Brandon is wrong on this. And Brandon is trying to equate the doctrines of grace and Augustine with Gnosticism. Now, whether or not Augustine was a Gnostic or not before he came to faith, uh, the fact is, is that once again, I'll say it again, Gnosticism is a late invention. We have the doctrines of grace preached from the very beginning of the Bible. And this is the comment that I think that we really need to uh, focus in on here. He says, we are constantly told to humble ourselves in the scripture. True. And then... Um, Brandon comes in and, and he says, my God wants all to be saved. And this, <laughs> then, then, then your God doesn't get what he wants. Well, it, well, but, <laughs> the, but the point here is that you've created a God. You're not looking at the scriptures. You're, you're, getting, you're created a God that doesn't get what he wants. You've created a God that is not found in the scriptures. Interesting. And you've created a God that, that uh, exactly what Rob's saying, that doesn't get what he wants. Um, and so the, the, the point is, is that I, I always find it interesting when someone's having a, a debate against someone else and both claim to be believers. And then one of them says, my God. There, that's sectarianism. Yeah, there you're, you go. you're, you're ju juxtaposing the the God of uh, that you believe in with the God that you're both claim to be believing in in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that Brandon is meaning to do do that in the chat room, 
but he's done that. So when he says, my God wants all to be saved, that means that God doesn't have the power to do what he wants. That means that God doesn't get what he wants. It doesn't, it means that, uh, it also means that your God is not the God of the Bible. Romans 9 specifically says that God chooses. And so, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that I think that we need to be, uh, I would just caution everyone when you're, when you're debating or talking and I, you know, people can have different opinions. That's fine. But when, when you're, when you're debating against other believers, I would caution people against using the, the term, my God. That means that you are worshiping a different God than the people that you are debating. And if you're both saying that you believe in the God of the Bible, then what you're trying to do is get to the bottom of what the Bible says, not what you believe. And so the idea that my God wants all to be saved, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. What I would, what, what I would respond to is perhaps more accurately, God is giving you a heart to pray for the salvation of people in your family and local uh, community. And I think that's... I. I'm on board with that. Look, I I have Methodists, uh, brothers and sisters, and actually like family members who are, are Methodist preachers. I have family members who are Methodist preachers. The person I'm spe- thinking of specifically is a preacher who absolutely loves the Lord. There's no doubt in my mind he has dedicated his life to the word and to leading the flock that God has put him over. I disagree with him on the idea, uh, on a lot of ideas, to be completely frank with you, we disagree on a lot of different things. But we get along very well and we agree on many things, including the most important things. I would never assume that that this brother and family member in the Lord uh, believes in a different God. And I would never say, well, the God that you believe in or the God that I believe in. That No, we believe in the same God. Now, we might be far apart on a lot of doctrinal issues, but uh, to, to juxtapose people like that in terms of, of that kind of argument, I think that what that does is it means that one one of the two people, and I'm not saying that this was the intent, but it says that one of the two people in the, in the conversation does not believe in the God of the Bible. That's what that says. So I would caution people against using that kind of terminology. All right. Um, I think that there needs to be a little bit said, and I don't know if we'll come back to this or not. Actually, let's let's answer Stephen's last question. He says this, when did the role of rabbis in the synagogue replace God's appointed Levitical priesthood? Was it during the Babylonian Syrian dispersion? I'm not sure if I would use the term replaced. I think that the uh, that the the idea of rabbi was to expound on how the scriptures were supposed to be understood, whereas the Levites, the priests were meant to carry out the the way that the scriptures were uh, written. In other words, we carry out this particular function of the Torah. Um, we see the term rabbi is in the apostolic scriptures. Um, and so it seems to me that the, the, the idea of rabbi or the function of quote-unquote rabbi was... Uh, was definitely around in the first century before the destruction of the temple. Rob, I think you've right, done a lot right. more work on this than I have. Yeah, that's right. And the um, you're right that it came from that time frame. And we know that not back to this idea of emphasizing the sectarian kind of context, the, none of the teachers at Qumran were called rabbi. So not just because you had a Jewish person in the first century who claim to walk in the Torah of Moses doesn't mean that rabbi was part of their hierarchical teaching structure. Um, it seems that in the gospel, we, again, in God's wisdom, you know, the incarnation was at a very specific time in history. And it's at a time where the term rabbi is used for John the Baptist, and who's a Cohen, right? He's, he's a Cohen. Uh, so he's a, not only a Levite, but he's a son of Aaron. So, um, and he didn't, you know, we've talked about this before, but you know, what, what would Zechariah's best hopes been for his son? Cause Zechariah offered, you know, he went in 
it was his uh, turn, and we learned from Luke 1, offered burnt incense, uh, incense offering, which was acceptable to God, obviously, because Gabriel's there, right? Um, uh, which speaks to the legitimacy of, of continuing temple worship. But um, the, from a natural perspective, it would be, oh, my son's going to be a priest also, right? I mean, that a son of Aaron, the idea is a son of Aaron in all the history of ancient Israel is a very special position. A firstborn son born of a miracle would be all the more like a Abraham, Isaac, Sarah kind of situation. But God told him, look, he's not going to have a life like, like you did, but he's going to fulfill, you know, the spirit of, of Elijah. He's going to bring the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children's back together. He's going to pre preach repentance and he's going to prepare the way for for the Messiah. So it's a really special thing that happened. But we do see that John's disciples called him rabbi, my teacher. And it seems to be a, a term of endearment, of like, of love. And we we value you as a, as a legitimate teacher of the word of God. Like we trust you. We trust your teaching over against other teachers out there. And that's disciples of Yeshua called him rabbi the same way. We trust your teaching. You're, we, where else will we go? You have the words of life. But in that same time frame, in, the, in that first century, it shifts and it becomes now more and more people want that. It becomes a desirable title for people to seek out, to obtain for themselves. That's why Yeshua says, be, be warned. There's people who want to be called rabbi. So now what is that? That doesn't mean people are coming to you as in this term of endearment and trust, but rather it's a sought after title for the sake of feeding the hypocrisy now. And then it becomes institutionalized among the rabbis of the Mishnah later after the temple's destruction is rabbi this, rabbi this, and everybody's rabbi. Even today in the messianic world, you know, rabbi this, yeah. rabbi that. And so we have to appreciate in my in my view that john the baptist and yeshua's uh, being called rabbi is not the same but see what you'll see and i've seen this people say oh it means that he got ordained by the line of rabbis that we hear about in the mishnah like hillel and shammai and all these others that they actually studied under these other rabbis and obtained smicha right they got their hands laid on them and were given the title and all of a sudden now we have a new gospel like People are, they've got a new story to tell about Jesus. And this story is something very different than what we learn in the Gospels. It's a story of Jesus who goes to Yeshiva. He learns, you know, the oral Torah. He pleases the rabbis enough. They see that his smarts, they lay hands on him and confer on him a title. And then he goes around from synagogue to synagogue teaching as a, um, as a vetted, representative of the oral of the oral Torah that goes back to Moses. I kid, it sounds silly, but that picture of Yeshua is out there and people believe it. And it's not in the gospel. Um, so MC and LC say, why shouldn't we call any, uh, anyone rabbi then? I, so I, I actually take a little bit different view on this, but ultimately. Well, Yeshua says don't. Okay. I think I think that uh, the term rabbi and father at the time were turning into if this person says it, I'll do it no matter what, because they're the mouthpiece of God. We see this in modern theology, too. We see it in Mormonism. We see it in Catholicism, right? The Pope is the mouthpiece of God. Interestingly, Catholicism took the term father, and that's exactly what happened. If you are a Catholic and, you, and, the, and the priest says something, I mean, this is why, the, why so many people in the Catholic Church have been able to... Um, sin against little children is because people do like it's as if God says it right the same thing happens in in Judaism the rabbi if the rabbi says it it's as if they're it's as if God's saying it so I think that the idea of putting um putting your total faith in someone is basically what's taught what it's talking about however I would say this within the messianic and the Hebrew roots movement people who call themselves rabbi there is a specific notion of what a rabbi is. That would be like me just deciding that I'm going to, you know what, I'm really good at what I do, so everybody needs to just start start calling me doctor. There is a degree out there that is a rabbinical degree. If you're going to be called rabbi within Judaism, you don't just all of a sudden decide that you're a rabbi and start um, 
calling yourself that because you lead a couple of people. You need a degree. You need a rabbinical degree. And so when you have people in the Messianic and the Hebrew Roots movement who come, come along, they say, oh, well, I'm leading this congregation. I'm just going to call myself rabbi. That I mean, that is perhaps one of the most ridiculous things ever. And the reason why is because that's not what you are. You don't have a rabbinical, most of the time, 99% of the time, guys who call themselves rabbi in the Messianic and Hebrew Roots world do not have a rabbinical degree. Even the guys who have a doctorate, if you have a doctorate, you are a doctor. You are not a rabbi. Rabbi is a term that, it's a form that you get from a rabbinical school. So um, the notion <clears throat> that uh, people within, the, within these movements would call themselves that is, I, I think, once again, it's, it's this idea of taking things that shouldn't be taken and a trying to uh, revamp the word to mean something else than what yeah, it actually I, I, means. Right. And the apostolic scriptures gives us the functional titles, you know, teacher, evangelist, right? I mean, we're, we're, there are roles for people to learn and, and aspire to, to be an elder, for example, right? It's a good thing if he aspires to be a, a an overseer. So, so it's not that it's not that there's not roles within the body that are, or you know, there are in fact roles for the health of the body. Right. We got to have teachers, but when you start getting into titles, I want you to call me. You know, I'm this title. It confuses. I think it 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 confuses the hierarchy because Yeshua says you have one teacher and you're all brothers and sisters. Right. That's that's the, the core hierarchy is the individual, all of us as family siblings and Yeshua as our teacher and our Lord. So, all right. It's been a fun show. Um, we, is that it? Wow. That's it. We're done. We actually went longer than normal. Um, we will be back next week. Good conversations. Uh, great, great conversations in the chat room. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about a lot of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I think it would be good for us at some point to touch a little bit more on the transmission of the scriptures up until the first century. In other words, the canonization of the uh, of the Tanakh. Uh, there, well, we have that class where your uh, Tim Haig teaches a class how we got our Bible. Right. I don't know if that'll be offered this fall or not, but uh, stay I think tuned. It's, yeah, I think it's a fall course. We'll see. Actually, uh, Torah resource uh, classes should open sometime this week uh, for registration, I believe. All right, guys. Uh, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. Mm-hmm.